Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Jude. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you today for another opportunity to worship you, to come before you and sing about the great things you have done. And Lord, to make ourselves ready to hear the word of God, to prepare us, to make us soldiers in this world so we can stand up against the schemes of the devil so we can detect those who are teaching incorrectly. And so, Lord, we can even examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. So, Lord, today as we approach your word, Lord, give us insight into those who are proclaiming to preach your word but are not and help us to fight the battle of the church, to keep the truth, and to uphold it, and to defend it. And I pray this today in Christ's name, amen. So Jude chapter 1, the only one chapter of Jude. Jude had originally, just to bring you up to date, intended to write to his audience a general letter about a believer's common salvation, a salvation we will all share as Christians, but he changed his plans when he received word about false teachers. He wanted to write a treatise on salvation, but when he heard the grim news that some supposed Christian teachers were denying Christ and using the grace of God to justify immoral behavior, Jude had to write a word of rebuke and a word of warning. In verse number three, if you notice, it says, Beloved, while I'm making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, again, this word contended is a term that really quickly brings to our mind uh, uh, a struggle, a fight like two fighters who contend against one another. Here, again, the word does actually mean to make a strenuous effort on behalf of something. And one contends for something when there are antagonists or dangers and sometimes anything that's worth fighting for. And Jude, of course, is intensely concerned about the threat of heretical teachers in the church and the response that Christians should have concerning a threat. Now, that threat is still alive and well today, but we are fighting a different fight, a fight for the hearts and minds of people. It is not a fight where we're actually fighting people physically, but we are fighting for something. We are fighting for hearts and minds, it's, it's like what um, Paul said in the Corinthian church in chapter 10 
where he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your disobedience is or obedience is complete. So we are we are fighting for the hearts and minds of people because really the spirit of apostasy is blowing through. America at this present time. Scripture really affirms that in the last days we will experience spiritually difficult times. Just by way of, of an example, D.L. Moody, he was a great evangelist in the 1800s, uh, and he was a, a convinced abolitionist. D.L. Moody did not enlist in the Union Army during the Civil War claiming that he had never been a, a time in his life where he felt that he could take a gun and shoot down a fellow human being. And so he didn't want to do that, but he still wanted to be involved in the war effort. So what he did during the Civil War was that uh, there were camps that uh, rose up in Chicago, and uh, Moody helped to form the YMCA. Now, the YMCA is the Young Man's Christian Organization uh, Association. It's not just a song you sing at weddings. Uh, some people don't even know what that means today. And uh, what he did is that uh, he would minister to the soldiers that were coming in after battle. And on the, a Sunday uh, and a Monday in April 6th, uh, April 6th and 7th in 1862, a second great battle of the Civil War and one of the bloodiest, the Battle of Shiloh or the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing, was fought uh, in southern Tennessee. The Confederates lost 10,700 soldiers and Grant's army lost 13,000 and over 100,000 young men were wounded. What was interesting is that Moody's effort to bring the gospel to these young men, these young soldiers, many of them became believers and lost their lives in those battles. And so what he would, he relates this story about arriving at Pittsburgh Langing, Landing on April 11th in 1862, and re, he recounted that a large number of wounded men were be ta being taken down the Tennessee River, and a number of the young men of the Christian Commission, which he worked with, uh, he told them, listen, we cannot let these men die on this boat this night without telling them of Christ and of heaven. And so he said he came across a, a man. He said his face was the finest face I ever saw in my life. And he spoke to him, but he did not answer. And I sat down, Moody says, beside him, and I gave him some brandy and wine every now and then. And I said to myself, I cannot let him uh, pass away without getting some message from him to see where he stands spiritually. So the man opened up his eyes, and he was talking with him. And he says, do you want me to pass on a, a message to your mother? And the man lifted up his eyes, 
and said to him, tell my mother that I died trusting Jesus. He had heard the gospel and believed. See, so what I'm saying is that Moody was fighting a different battle. He was fighting the battle of souls, which is the most important battle. He fought for another kind of victory, the victory of bringing the gospel to somebody where they would believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, D.L. Moody was a pacifist, but he wasn't a pacifist when it came to the gospel. He was a machine gun, and he would just spew it out there. And because of his ministry, many of these young men who lost their lives in battle heard the gospel, believed, and died in Christ. That's an amazing story. You know what? But that battle is not over. That battle is still raging on, and that's the battle we are in as Christians. In fact, as I just said, that in the last days, the Bible warns us, there will be difficult times. We are living in times where some are referring to it as convergent eschatological times. And what that really means is that the end, in the end times, things globally will start to line up prophetically and take place in rapid succession. We're seeing that today. And the church should be able, whatever time it may be, to discern the times and the seasons and be prepared for what will come quickly upon our doorsteps. Just like Paul said, listen, but realize this in Timothy that in the last days, difficult times will come. And why will they come? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. And the list goes on and on. And then he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It doesn't say that people won't be religious. They will appear to be connected to God as part of the church, however they will have already denied its power. Where it says in Scripture, holding a form of godliness, although they deny its power, avoid such men as these, such people as these. So these difficult times will also bring many false prophets. First John tells us that in the last hour, you have heard many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So these false apostate teachers are on the scene. And there will be people leaving the truth for what is false. But they will be thinking that they are leaving what is false for the truth. That's deception. And Satan is very good at it. For it says in Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. And what will they do? They'll pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, do they think that they're paying attention to those things with those titles? No. They think they'll be paying attention to what is good and right, and they'll be paying attention to what is evil and wicked. And that comes from the pit of hell. So therefore, Jude, this epistle, is timely. It is hard-hitting. And it seeks to motivate the Christian church to wake up and be discerning in order to do battle against 
false teachers, and those who reject the truth. Jude was calling for the faithful to go to war against the intruders who have come into the church and to fight for the true Christian faith. Now, if we are to contend for the faith, we must grow in discernment. This is how we fight. We fight by knowing what we believe. In these latter days, we must be able to successfully identify false apostate teachers wherever and whomever they are, and they may, wherever they may show up even. And believe me, with Internet and media all over the place, they're showing up everywhere. And people don't even realize sometimes what they're reading is not true. It's actually false. And sometimes people are reading it and reading it and reading it, and they're getting a diet of falsehoods, and it begins to transform their minds. I said it's a, this is a battle for minds. It's a battle for hearts. Now, there are five characteristics mentioned in Jude 1, 8 through 16, but this Lord's Day, we're just going to focus in on one with, with its parts, and that is the reckless pride of apostate teachers. And the first thing that we see this morning is that sinful pride is depicted in rebellion. Now, look at verse number 8 of Jude, chapter 1. It says, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Now, right here in verse number 8, this Greek term here, dreaming, it's in the, uh, the present tense, meaning that it's got a continual habitual action to it, that these false teachers were habitually practicing this authority that they thought they had to be representing what they got in dreams. Now, that, that they promote deluded teachings through their false dreams that they claim are a form or from the Lord, which are not. And so they fantasize and dream up things. They are actually filthy dreamers, as he goes on to say here, who do not struggle to keep their thoughts clean and pure, because really to keep our thoughts clean and pure is a struggle every day for all of us. And But that's part of the Christian lot is that we know we need to struggle and put sin to death, right? We know that. They do not struggle to put sin to death because they're, of course, ultimately they're not believers, but they are claiming to be. So the word here may indicate that false teachers' delusion and their blind in their delusion and their blindness, they take the real for the unreal and the unreal for the real. They are dreamers who claim authority from their dreams. So then the authoritative source of revelation is their own dreams and wicked imaginations, not the word of God. So this is their rebellion. Their rebellion is against the truth of God's word. 
and because they set themselves up as the authority. So dreams, we know, are not an accurate source of truth. Jude is, is not referring to night dreaming or prophetic dreaming, which were at times in Scripture in reference to revelation from God. He's not talking about that. And just like these false prophets of old that we read this morning and the false apostate teachers of today, they both live in a sinful dream world. They were reckless back then, and they are reckless now. They are careless back then, they're careless now for handling the things of God and the information about God, especially the prophets of Israel. The prophet that we read this morning, Jeremiah, he said the same thing, that these prophets were prophesying from their own dreams. They weren't getting it from God's word. If they got it from God's word, they would be a benefit to God's people, but they weren't getting it from God's word. And just to mention to you one of the passages read this morning, he says this in verse number 31, Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declared the Lord declares, but I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people with the slightest benefit. So it just shows there that they were prideful back then and they are prideful now, and they have no benefit for the people of God, so they should not be listened to. Now, the consistent activities of false apostate teachers really include three descriptions that they pretend their proclamation was good news, avoiding the prophetic warning of judgment, and replace them with false promises of peace and security. Also, there is no divine authority behind their message at all. If Yahweh did not send these people to speak on his behalf, then they have no divine authority, but they are claiming authority, their own authority. And, of course, that authority means that they could be gifted speakers. They could be very quick-minded, and they can be very dynamic in their ability to bring across whatever they want to say. And so that means they are have the ability to captivate people, to bring them in, to get them to like them. Of course, God condemns the prophets of old for their lies, and already Second Peter and Jude tells us they're already condemned. So those who were sent by Yahweh in the Old Testament were to be listened to as true prophets. And those who were not sent by Yahweh were not to be listened to. They instead were to be stoned to death. So false teachers put aside the true God and his standards and they imagine a world without ultimate standards and coming judgment. They begin to live as if 
the world of their imagination was true. It's like John Lennon singing, imagine there is no heaven. Right? It's easy to do. Well, when you start imagining things that are really true, and you are trying to get people to imagine them that they're not true, then you're already deceiving people. So you see, one commentator said it like this, that these, they submit, they substitute, he said, the unreal world of their fantasies for the real world of divine truth and righteousness. Dreaming that they were free and independent and yet to, uh, ye- and, and, says, and they yield imaginations and daringly ignore the warnings of the past that God would judge such conduct. Now, this little phrase in verse number 8, which I didn't mention yet, it says, yet in the same way, of course, that's connected to what was just said. Remember from last message, from the last message, none of the individuals mentioned in the previous verses went unpunished by God. None of the Israelites who turned from God after he delivered them from Egyptian slavery survived. They all physically died. None of the angels who abandoned the boundaries of God set for them by sinning with human women, they were judged by God and bound for e- in eternal darkness. None of the openly sinful men of Sodom and Gomorrah, none of them survived. They were punished by eternal fire. So then, if the Lord held judgment on these, what about those dreamers? who chose to prophesy and teach falsehood in the name of God. What about them? In verse number four, it already says, who were long before marked out for condemnation. And the same is true today when teachers put an imbalanced emphasis on, for example, the love of God while leaving out God's anger and God's wrath and God's judgment spreading the popular message that God is a God of love and tolerance, usually saying it doesn't matter how you live as long as you have Jesus, you'll be all right. Yet it is not loving to tell people God is a God of love and tolerance when he has revealed himself as a God who is compassionate and merciful, yet will not Let the unjust sinner go unpunished. That's who he is. See, God detests sin and must punish it. That's a loving message because we now tell people how they can be rescued from his judgment. So God is not just a loving God. He is a holy and a just God. Now, this evil dreaming leads to three things. Notice in verse number 8, here's the first thing it leads to. It says, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. Here's the first thing it leads to. That false teaching will lead someone to not pay attention to their own body, their own mind, 
their own actions, their own words, their own desires. See, the rebellion of the, the rebellion of these false teachers is seen in their wicked imaginations while living in their sinful dream world in which their pleasures are promoted, rejecting the Bible as the authority. They appeal to dreams and their own imagination as a source of revelation and justification for their immoral lifestyle. This is the God told me crowd. This is the crowd that says, I prayed about it. See, these defenses is what Jude calls defiling the flesh. Also, silent, silent uh, praying where uh, people pray and they think about something in their mind and then they think God speaks to them at that moment and then that's what they do. Uh, These are very dangerous things when you depend on your mind and your imagination to think that God spoke to you. That is very dangerous unless it is founded and grounded in the word of God. And believe me, God is transforming our mind. But for what reason? That we would know the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God, right? So then we can discern ourselves too in that passage in Romans, that we would know how not to uh, lift ourselves up higher than we ought to or look down upon ourselves, but look at ourselves on how God created us and what lot he's given us and what gifts he's given us and what circumstances he's given us. But when you start saying, well, God told me, how do you know God told you? How do you know that if just because you prayed about it doesn't mean that it's God's will for you to do it? God told me, I heard people say, God told me to lead my, my husband. Oh, he did. Well, what about all the scripture that says, no, you need to work on your marriage. You need to keep your marriage together. What about that? So claiming to have a word from the Lord does not legitimate what one says. And, of course, the term defile means to stain or to make something unacceptable. These false teachers believed that following their own lust and showing no restraint was actually a sign of spiritual maturity. So these false teachers, freedom in Christ was following their own sensuality. Freedom in Christ was to follow their own lust and not the truth, that this newfound freedom actually put them in bondage to their own sinful passions and desires. And as Scripture has already said to us in 2 Peter, they are slaves of corruption. Now, this, this is really a pride that they have, that they think they know better than what the truth says. And you know what the Bible says about pride. The old King James Bible in Psalm 73 says, therefore pride compasses them about as a chain, and violence covers them as a garment. That pride comes, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. And then pride goes before destruction. 
And then in Proverbs 28, an arrogant man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will prosper. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but the one who walks wisely will be delivered. So false teachers actually feed the strongest urges of the fallen nature, fueling a view of life that holds to certain principles. It's like what uh, Paul Tripp said in his little booklet on uh, teens and sex. He said this, that people think like this. People are, are the ultimate, and they're the ones who are autonomous. That is that they there's nothing more important than the individual. So they think that they are free from any authority that they do not choose to follow. And then he also said that the highest human va- the, the highest human value and experience is personal satisfaction and pleasure. That's what you pursue in life. He also said that one must be constantly vigilant that their needs are met. Or one must, uh, the most important love is love of self. The here and now, they, he says, is the more, more important. And there is a constant pursuit for instant gratification now. So the physical person is the most important, not the spiritual person, the physical person. So they, they pretty much live on this side of eternity. There is no, there's no future. There's no waiting and preparing yourself for the presence of the Lord. And so false teachers are, are popular because of this message because they appeal to the base desires and the felt needs of people, and they advocate, really, the full freedom of the flesh, unbridled living. Second Peter already pulled back the curtain on their shameful immorality when he says about them, Peter says, they have twisted sexual desires continually. They indulge in evil pleasures, and they commit adultery in their heart. They have, he says they have eyes full of adultery, never cease from sin. So this is a continual, habitual practice of the heart and mind with no struggle whatsoever. Of course, that is something we ought to identify as uh, believers, that you and I, um, if you and I, do not have a struggle in our mind, in our heart towards sin, that could be a problem. Uh, it could be a problem that you are thinking wrongly, that you're not thinking correctly about what God desires in your heart and life to be holy. And according to Scripture, someone claiming to be a Christian and a teacher for God, if they display an immoral character, It actually invalidates the gospel message, which is really the characteristic of false Christians and false teachers. It was John MacArthur who rightly observed that their message of independence, personal freedom, and self-exaltation is inherently appealing to the fallen human heart, and they would rather serve themselves than submit to Christ. So Christians are to be discerning concerning Christian books and conferences and churches and blogs and YouTube posts 
and sermons online and offline with many different theological perspectives that could be good and instructive and edifying, but it also could be bad and destructive and lead into error and lead into wrong thinking and wrong behavior. So a constant diet of error can become a defiling influence, and it will be a defiling influence. Well, how many books? You can't go into a a Christian bookstore and think that they're going to vet everything that's on those shelves, right? They're not. Or that you're going to go to Amazon, and Amazon has done its homework to say these are good things to read and these are bad things to read. No, you have to have the discernment. You have to know what the truth is. And that's the fight that we have for truth. This, and not only truth, but the pursuit of a holy life. A pursuit of a holy life will make you good students of yourselves in order to know how to handle the battle with sexual lust. Freedom comes when you possess a working knowledge of your own tendencies. Scripture clearly teaches that it is God's will for you and I to abstain from sexual immorality, where it says in Thessalonians, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So moral purity is a matter of abstaining, not simply of being careful. So then when following God's will, you will become a disciplined student of your own body, how it functions, what appeals to it, what weakens it, what strengthens it. If we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and practice what is taught in Scripture, you will know how to control your inner drive and how to gain mastery over it and how to sustain yourself in a life of purity rather than yielding to lustful passions that are all around us and that we're tempted with every single day. Because when the mind is transformed by Scripture, you and I will remain convinced that God clearly and unequivocally stands against extramarital sex and homosexual sex, and sexual encounters with individuals outside of marriage under any situation. We will know that for sure, even though the world is saying it's okay, do what you feel is right, follow your heart is the big one. You are already in danger for falling off the cliff if you believe that. See, this is freedom when we learn how to discipline ourselves in holiness. Because in many ways, sexual sins take a a personal toll on victims, leaving the person in actual in bondage, increasingly less satisfied with life, 
and on a downward spiral which only results in greater tragedy. That guilt and grief become their constant companions. So choosing a life, choosing a holy life, you will honor God. You will honor the God of moral absolutes, and your obedience will result in greater personal confidence, continued habits of holiness, and you will find yourself spiritually stronger and healthier and secure in your relationship to Jesus Christ. So, but false teaching, what will it do in your life? It will actually bring you to the place where you defile the flesh. So this is the first thing that he mentions in Scripture about those who are dreamers. They're getting their information from their own mind. They're getting it from the world. And, of course, we know Satan's behind all this stuff. And they're getting it from him, too. So there's a second thing that happens when somebody just depends on their own imagination and their own thoughts as if their thoughts and their mind were the authority. And many people think like that, especially if they're very intelligent. They think they know better because they have an ability to think through things in different in ways and into exhaustion where they think, yes, this is the right way. But what happens to a person who just depends on their imagination, upon their own thinking, upon their own motivation for the principles of their life? Not only will they defile the flesh, but notice secondly in our passage in verse number 8, they will, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority. God said immoral activity is sin, right? Yet they do not live by God's standards, but their own. These false teachers are denying the Lord, their God, their creator who made them. As a creator, he owns them. So false teachers claim to be part of the household of God and yet refuse to submit to the master of the house, chucking off God's lordship and leadership. They set themselves and their fanciful ideas in place of authority instead. They stress the right to live like they want to, to do anything they want to do. Well, you may say, well, that doesn't seem to be wrong, that wrong. there's, There's nothing wrong with rights and freedoms and liberties. God's given us many of those as believers. But the law of God and the word of God is necessary, especially the law of God. And without the law of God to control us, man becomes selfish. He becomes indulgent. He gives greater and greater license to his own personal desires. Without God's authority, and if Jesus Christ is not Lord, then false apostate teachers and those who follow them can pretty much do what they want to do when they want to do it. And nobody's going to hold them accountable. So if they are these kind of people, the church needs to be aware. We need to be aware of everything that comes into our mind, everything that we see with our eyes and we hear with our ears. See, false teachers knew the truth. However, they turned from it. That's why they're apostate. They are professors 
in word, but they reject the authority of the Creator and actually deny His redemptive offer and purchase. They say no to the one who has power and authority. They are apostates, and apostates are not necessarily people who leave the institutionalized church. They just leave the truth. And that becomes a very important point. They throw off God's leadership and instead are led by fleshly desires and fanciful ideas that come from inside of themselves, not the truth and not Scripture. So there, this evil dreaming will lead, will actually lead them on in their own imaginations uh, away from the revelation of God and will lead them to something else. And the third thing under this first point is those who dream blaspheme angelic beings. Notice what it says in verse number eight. They not only defile the flesh, reject authority, but they revile angelic majesties. In other words, they they speak injuriously toward those angels who surround the throne of the holy God and reflect the holiness of his being, that these false teachers reject Jesus as Lord, resulting in an arrogant disrespect for authority, for any authority. And the audacity of these false teachers who disrespect angelic powers and scoff at spiritual things and spiritual supernatural beings disregarding angels, uh, remember, are, they're still created in the, by God himself. That God's, the angels are God's servants. They, are, they carry out God's, they carry down God's message to earth. And they fight off evil spirits on behalf of the saints. That's what they do. They are created just like we are created. They are different than us. They are more powerful than us. And yet they are to be respected. It becomes apparent that false teachers dishonor and revile the angels because these teachers hate the true God of heaven. It shows there. That's why they are blaspheming them. They are speaking arrogantly against them. So that means that these false teachers are worldly. The the idea of a spiritual world that is real and alive as the physical world is in question. And just as 2 Peter says that the second coming of Christ will be questioned and mocked at by false teachers, the idea of Christ being exalted to the right hand of God and of believers someday ruling and reigning with Christ in a new heaven and new earth is doubted and often ridiculed by them. So they have this desire to be arrogant. And this brings me to the really the second characteristic of this careless pride where it says in verse number nine that their sinful pride is depicted in their arrogance. So sinful pride is not only depicted in rebellion, sinful pride is depicted in arrogance. In verse number nine, it says, this is the attitude of the false apostate teacher that is now contrasted with 
Michael the archangel in scripture that these they commit sins of arrogance because everything they do is about themselves. They are ruled by self-interest. And if you notice here, you, Jude brings this up, that the Jews established that Michael, the archangel, was the highest among the angels. And according to Daniel 10.13 and 12.1, Michael was the chief warring angel in the Old Testament. Jude uses a situation that apparently took place between Michael and the devil over the body of Moses, but is not found in the Old Testament. In fact, Deuteronomy 34 does say this, so that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Bel Peor, but no man knows the burial place to this day. Some of, some of the other early church fathers said that Jude was quoting from a, a literary work called The Assumption of Moses, a writing which is not found in the Jewish canon of Holy Scripture. However, the testimony of the Western church maintained that Quotation from a non-canonical book was not in and of itself wrong. Instead, they believed that the they believed that part of the work which Jude quoted must have been an accurate representation of an old oral Jewish tradition. So our best guess is that the story shows Satan wanting the body of Moses as a potential relic so people can worship it. Or Satan was challenging Michael because uh, to Moses' right to be buried by God because he had murdered an Egyptian, whatever there may be other things. But it's not hard to think that God had Michael bury Moses. And we do find Moses showing up on the Mount of Transfiguration so it looks like Michael won out. But angels who are representatives of God, being of greater power and strength, refused to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against this supernatural being, Satan. False teachers do that which even the highest angel would not dare do. Now, that, that shows something to us. Notice what it says in verse number 9. They did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said what? The Lord rebuke you. Now, you know what that means? That, that, that means according to Jude chapter, nine, or Jude, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, that Michael was a good angel, that he showed respect to God's creation, even an evil angel who fell, that he showed restraint. He had all the power to overcome, but he did not. He showed reverence. He knew his place, that God judgment is God's department. 
that good angels do not bring accusations against bad angels. Second Peter, uh, Peter brings the same thing up. It says, do not bring a railing judgment against them before the Lord. So we can learn from Michael's response and how he sees himself. He was not the judge. He was not the creator. He was not his own authority. He was not a lawmaker. But who was he? He was a created angel. He was a servant of the Lord. He was a minister for God on behalf of God and his creatures. So he respectfully accepted his position in, in God's economy. He knows his boundaries. He sees himself exactly how he was created and what he was created to do. And hence, he knows his mission in God's economy. There's no pride found in him. There's no arrogance to be found in his character. See, he showed humility when he accepted his lot given to him by God. Boy, if we would learn that, that we would accept everything that's going on in your life right now, when you were born, where you live, what job you have, where you're at spiritually has everything to do with what God did, the lot he gave you. See, too often we want to move ourselves out of what God is doing and want something else because we think we deserve it. But that's not how we should look at our life. We should look at our life just like this. How has God created me? What circumstances has he given me? What family am I born into? What educational opportunities has, has he given me? What spiritual circumstances am I, am I in? Has he grown me in the Lord? What church do I belong to? What do I understand and believe? See, all those things are how we should look at ourselves. Because I am not you. You are not me. I cannot be you. You cannot be me. So let's not try to be someone we're not or desire something someone has that, that God's never going to give to us. If God made someone wealthy, God blessed them, but maybe he didn't make you wealthy. If God given you great intelligence to understand things that you can't even have a conversation with a whole lot of people because they don't understand what you're talking about, if he's done that to you, great, but he's not done to someone else who maybe, maybe doesn't have a great intellect at all. That all that stuff is, is all right, but you have to understand who you are and what lot you God has given you. Because in doing that, you actually fight against arrogance that could be welling up in your heart about what you think you should have that God did not give you. As if God doesn't know your life? As, he, as if he doesn't know what you need and what you deserve or whatever the Lord decides... It's up to him. And you know what? When we think like that, that will benefit us. And it will make things go a lot better in our relationships, in our family, in our relationships with other people, in our relationships in the church. That's what it will do. See, because this is what the Lord was doing with this angel, showing us 
that if the archangel Michael, most possibly the highest angel in heaven around the throne, can, can respond like this, what about us who now bear the image of God and if you're in Christ, he's making you new. What about us? See, that's the kind of people we ought to be. And in doing so, we fight against false teaching. You realize that, right? Because God's transforming us. He's making us into the image of Christ. He's making us and preparing us for his presence. That is what he's doing. And if that is happening in your life, then you thank the Lord for it every day and just humble yourself and accept the lot that God has given you because he knows everything about your life. Everything, right? And he can be trusted. He can be honored. He can be worshipped. And believe me, he has your best interest in mind because you're one of his kids. And no one's going to touch God's kids. No one. Well, that leads me to my last one, but I'm out of time because we have the Lord's table this morning. And that's simply this, that their sinful pride is depicted in their ignorance, and I'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. And then I'll go to the Lord's table. Lord, thank you this morning. Because, Lord, you're a kindness to us in showing us what's in Scripture. To see how these particular teachers say they're talking on your behalf. And yet they're not talking on your behalf at all. That you are against them. And that, Lord, if anyone gets a constant diet of what they're saying, will actually cause great havoc within our soul and in our mind and in our life. So, Lord, give us this discernment from the Word of God that we can detect, spot quickly, and not be pulled in by every wind of teaching that's out there today. Let, make us people like that. Close the door of our mind on those type of teachers. And I pray, Lord, I pray for their salvation. I pray that they would come to know the truth and be saved. And Lord, make us like Michael. Help us to accept our lot that you've given us and not always be grumbling and complaining about the things we have or don't have. Let us just rest in what you've done and trust you every day of our lives. And in doing so, Lord, allow the peace of God to guard our heart and mind from worry and allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength each and every day. And I pray this this morning in the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.